0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: Today's scripture is from Acts 14, 8-18. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voices, saying in Laconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth And the sea and all that is in it. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. This is the word of the Lord.
0: trick. Appreciate it, buddy. You know, uh, one of my best friends from high school uh, went on to play football at UVA, University of Virginia. And uh, a good friend of mine, his name was Whitney Majors, and this was back in the day when uh, some of those bigger, some of those big names like Ronde Atiki Barber, uh, those guys that kind of won some Super Bowls were on that, that college team, and they beat Florida State when they were ranked number one. I mean, just, they were a big team. And when Whitney was playing, one time his family was gathering around the television to watch, um, because, you know, just to travel to Charlottesville. was tough from Dallas, Texas, every now and then. So they watched at least every game they could. And Whitney's grandmother sitting with them um, throughout the game kept saying, Whitney made another touchdown. And, uh, you know, the parents and sister and, and brother-in-law kept like, okay, that's great. We're glad you're cheering. It was a little confusing. Kind of like, okay, that's great. Maybe she's just cheering for UVA. And they said, after a number of times again, He's, Whitney scored again. And they said, no, Whitney is not on the field. I said, no, there's number two right there. Well, what they didn't realize, there are two number twos. And Whitney was a 5'5", 135-pound kicker. He was the smallest player in Division I football at the time. Who she was cheering for was a 6'2", 215-pound running back who kept scoring over and over and getting the credit every time. And so, do we let her know? Well, you know, you read a passage like this, and this actually happens often in the book of Acts, that there's kind of confusion. When uh, Paul and Barnabas, particularly in this passage, come to a city and they proclaim what's called the good news, they start talking about things, and or they do a work of God, there can be confusion, particularly in cities that have the credit given to someone else. Notice, when they heal this man, immediately they start giving the credit to, that was, they would say, Zeus and Hermes. Because to them, that was what, hey, we're going to give the credit. But Paul and Barnabas are like, no, 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 wrong credit. Doesn't go there. In fact, it's such a big deal to them, they begin tearing their clothes. And that was a sign of, of, of deep distress. To so say, no, 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 wrong credit. They were completely confused. And this happens often in the book of Acts. When, when Luke wrote this, actually, he was writing this as a volume two. Now, you may have heard this before, but Luke, who was the gospel writer, wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke. That is volume one. He wrote Acts as volume two to talk about how does, the, how does this good news of the gospel break out of Jerusalem and go into the world wide? And now it's really in a city where it's not just going into a, a kind of a different place with Greek speakers. It's going to a place where Paul and Barnabas can't even understand what they're saying either. Because when they start speaking in Lyconium, that's Luke's way of saying, they're speaking something they can't even understand. And the good news of the gospel is going in. The good news meaning that that Jesus' life, death, resurrection, this news that transforms not just individual lives, but complete cultures, economies, goes in into this city and others you see in the book of Acts and just radically stirs up a city because they don't know what to do because they're so used to giving the credit to specific gods of creation, little g gods of creation that when they come in and say, hey, no, 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 no," there's actually a living God that makes sense of everything else you're doing in a completely different way. That you no longer have to give sacrifice to that. You give sacrifice to him. You look to him because he's made the ultimate sacrifice. That's what they see. So what we're gonna look at this morning is three things about the difference in this passage between little gods and who God is. Little g-gods and God, that, Love, creation, and relationship. So those three things, we'll see, we'll walk through them together. You know, at the beginning of this passage, uh, now at Lystra, and it says there was a man who could not use his feet and he was crippled from birth and never walked. And he listened to Paul speaking. So here's a guy in the, the marketplace, He's probably been there a number of times. He, he was either probably carried there or made his way there or maybe even slept there. And as other people would pass by, He remained, and somehow he could understand. He heard what Paul was saying, and he, Paul looked intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, somewhere along the line, he was listening, looking intently, maybe more than just looking for something of of, of a meal or food, maybe reaching to Paul. He said, stand upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began walking, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now, in the book of Acts, there are a lot of travels and a lot of speeches. But what happens here is interesting because this is showing us that in the public square, in the public life of Lystra, as there were in many places, was religion. They had temples when you walked in. Temples sat in the marketplace. There was more of an integration, as we just talked about, an integration of their faith and economy and work. Now that's not a cultural you know, commentary on us, but they did have more of that integration. They understood, okay, what happens here? When we give sacrifice to this, we see more of this. If we give to the gods, we hope we get rain and we get our crops. If we give to this, that, that was the, the way, the cost benefit analysis. But here's something interesting about Lystra itself. In their history, there's a Roman poet named Ovid who tells of a story of Zeus and Hermes coming to that region in another form. And when they did, they came and they found, they received hospitality from elderly poor couple, but others around them didn't give this human form of Zeus and Hermes any lodging. So after... They left that town, massive floods came and destroyed Lystra. And so this town's reaction isn't just because they see a miracle. They're also remembering their city's history. If we don't care for the, here's something incredible happening. If we don't lean into it, our city's gonna be destroyed. We need to go back to, we need to give to. They looked at every part of what they did in life as a review. This was another review, and if you didn't fit, if you didn't pass this review with good stars, then you had destruction come your way. That's how they saw love. That's how their relationship and love was to the gods. I was uh, listening to uh, I, I do it every so often this American Life. It's a public PR, uh, NPR publication, and Ira Glass kind of tells some stories. And you know, every now and then there's some some stories that are really interesting. One was on everyone's a critic. And it was talking about how we live in such a, review, a life of reviews and stars. <laughs> everything we do has stars and reviews. And if you go on, you can see this. It says, the average customer on Amazon lives in this world. He, he even l- went up and looked. He says, our guys uh, saw that everything was given stars. Even Amazon gift cards were given five stars. <laughs> and then it went on to say, Everyone constantly is assessing it. And even people gave poor reviews to the Statue of Liberty. So like if you go on, you can find a review for any and everything that you think of. Everything. I mean, here's your gift card. uh, Who is it that went on and said, I gave you an Amazon gift card. Here's five stars for that. It's gonna be fantastic. I mean, you know, that's how we think. But this is how the, the, the people in Lystra lived. To them, they had to get the right reviews. They had to. The relationship, the way they received love from the gods was by what they gave them. It was by the review they, they received. And it is radically different from that character. So different that Paul and Barnabas, when they see that they're misunderstanding this, the gods have come down to likeness. Barnabas, and, you know, they called Zeus. Uh, Paul, they called Hermes. And when they started, and they didn't understand this. This is why it took them a little bit until they saw garlands and bulls being brought out to be sacrificed to them. Then they realized, no, 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 that is not who we are. We are just like you. That these people have embedded in their life, in their culture, in the way that they do everything, that if I get a bad review, I am not loved. That's how the gods work. They're saying, that's not how the good news works. The good news in verse 15, we bring you good news. Now imagine hearing good news in the midst of just what is news, what we are so used to of that. What good news is, is a proclamation. That's actually what good news meant, gospel. It wasn't something that you gave an opinion to. It was actually news of something that you gave a reaction to that here's news of someone who actually came that's actually very different from how you receive it. In fact, the way that they heal this man is different even than the story of Zeus and Hermes going in before and lodging with the peasant family. They give mercy not to receive it. They, it comes to them, this person of faith, this person who they've passed by. In fact, here's the difference between this God and other gods is that, This God in the good news of Jesus, the the God, doesn't come to be served, but to serve. He doesn't come to show us that you need to pay tribute to him. He actually comes to say, there's no tribute you can bring that would do it. Only I can serve in that way. Only I can give my life in that way. In fact, his love is so radically different that I know C.S. Lewis talked about this as uh, he talked about myth and history. He had a dear friend that did not know Jesus, and he himself came to faith in a similar way, who was a, a very intellectual man, a friend of his that he talks about. And he talks about myth and history. Now, to us, when we say the word myth, it comes across as urban legend. But what he was talking about is those stories that continue to be passed along. That aren't necessarily not fact, but they're what we know as stories. But he says, the difference is this is myth connecting to history, that myth, the story of what we long for in love, what we long for in the reality of God being who he is, not just this cost-benefit analysis that He we think he does on us, but that he actually comes in and loves us in the way that we long to have is historical. Remember this, when Jesus, he comes and they talk to him about where he, you know, Jesus doesn't come in and and as they offer him the crown, he doesn't take a crown. He says, I have nowhere to lay my head. Jesus doesn't come and demand hospitality. He comes in and says, I am poor. I'm going to be poor. I'm actually going to be lower than all. So that I may come in and serve you and show you what real love is. It's not something you try and grasp and keep. It's something that none of us believe we can ever get or receive. And that's why he had to come the way he did. Because we still look to things. And right now to give us the review, to encourage us to say, you are loved. But God does not do that. He is nothing like anything else we handle. Like, nothing like anything else we look to, to try and tell us how much we're loved. He says, you are loved Every lower G God says, I will love you if, if you sacrifice enough. Notice in this passage, even the way it ends, it says, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. That it just emanates from them. They have to sacrifice. They have to give themselves. And how do we know that so well? There is nothing, I mean, let's take one off the shelf, work. There's nothing more easy than work could put school in that place, then something that gives you just the right return. The more you put into it, the more it gives back. And work is easy to pick on too because it doesn't talk back to you like other things. Oh, sure, there are disappointing things and hard things about work. But what I'm saying is, is that you can pour into it and keep pouring into it and sacrifice to it and know that it's gonna keep coming back. And you can see it grow and grow and feel better about it. And sometimes it's hard. But then at the end of it, why are we so exhausted? Because it says, I'll love you if, I'll love you if you continue to sacrifice. Because our hearts want to sacrifice. And yet Jesus says, even to the religious leaders, he says to them, God desires mercy over sacrifice. He desires a heart of mercy that is so rich in knowing that there is mercy within your heart more than you just giving and giving and giving because you can't give enough to say, I deserve it back. Only God can love first. And here's what's interesting as they continue on and they bring out this calf and this garland Barnabas and Paul realized they're about to sacrifice to them. And and again, how different is this and what we saw in even the chapter before this with King Herod, who said, when they brought out all the people were saying, hey, you are a God among men. He said, oh, absolutely. (laughs) He was like, you just keep it coming. He just was like, tell me that. How different of them tearing their clothes and saying, no, you are giving the credit to the wrong people. And how in the world did Barnabas and Paul redirect them they redirect them by talking about creation. Now, notice, they're going into a land that these people don't know a verse. He can't say, well, you know, the Old Testament unpacks it. He begins by saying, you see creation. He talks about creation. What a brilliant way to do that. In my office, I have a, um, a book. It's a children's book I bought years ago. Um, that talks about and it kind of lays out all of the creation stories from uh, all the major religions. And I bought it because I thought it would be a very interesting way to unpack that. Now, again, it's easy to kind of look at creation stories as a cartoon, but that's not what we're reading here. And that's not what other people of any of these religions believe. They don't believe it's cartoon. (laughs) They believe that these creation stories are real. But one of the things that's interesting, if you if you open this book and lay them out, over and over a pattern is there, that there are some similarities, but the large differences between the biblical story of creation and any other religion is this, that all the other ones begin with some sort of matter in creation coming out of war or violence or murder or difficulty. They actually spring up out of distress. And the Bible is the one place where it says, this is good. When God creates, when he speaks into being, he says, this is good. N- notice when he speaks to these people who are, A, are not, not only uh, people who wouldn't say that they follow the Lord, but they don't know anything about the Bible. He says, men, what are you, why are you doing these things? We also are like nature with you. They identify with them. And we bring you good news that should turn you from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth the sea that is all in them. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, meaning you walked all over the place, knowing, not knowing where you were and who you serve. It says, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness that he didn't leave them without a witness, that creation itself is the witness pointing beyond it to the creator. This is one of the things that the Bible picks up over and over and over for us, is that one of our biggest difficulties of what we want to sacrifice to is that we take the creator and we look what he has given in creation, even the beautiful, wonderful, rich things of creation, and we often exchange those things. Or we often look to what he gives us more than who he is. We look to those things that we love, the rich tastes that we experience, the sounds that fill our ears, the ways that we feel like we are just engulfed in something. And we want to be a part of it, we wanna take it in. I remember one of my favorite concerts, I've mentioned it to you before uh, at Vanderbilt Stadium, uh, U2, one of my favorite bands, if not my favorite band. And that place, it was hot, it was July, it was hot and nasty and no one cared. Everybody was on their toes, singing with Bono fully in his leather jacket, who cares if it's hot and sweaty and 105 degrees. He is going to sing his best songs to you there and we were all in it. I mean, I remember that moment even of like, how can we just stay in this? And yet you can't. Those beautiful rich things that, they, they come and go and you have memories of them and you want them and you want to grasp them. You want to hold them like water in your hands and yet you can't get your hands tight enough to keep it. And God is saying, we've given you these, I've given you these good things, but don't confuse the good things that you have for the one who's good that gave them to you. They are signposts to the one who gave them to you. They are the signs you say, this is the one who loves you. He says, men of We are like nature with you. He identifies with them that there's someone greater, some of huge historical difference here that doesn't make creation bad. And that's what we typically do with creation is we either wanna worship it or hate it because it can't do what we want it to do. Our hearts are built to sacrifice for it. Here's an interesting thing from it is that the Iliad and the Odyssey, I don't know if you remember those books from you know school or something like that. They were Those books, the Iliad and the Odyssey, were actually, the there are two documents that are some of the most uh, time-tested documents that have lasted. One is Iliad and Odyssey, and one is the Bible. Both of those manuscripts have lasted. And actually, one of the reasons the Iliad and the Odyssey has lasted and why it's so important was such a cultural revolution for the Greek Greco-Roman people to see what other gods really like. It actually showed them that the gods they served, largely gods, oftentimes could not hold the power they wanted them to hold. And so that book actually catapulted them to think, "Well, we actually have the same amount of power as they do." That's actually what that book was for. The Bible does something different. The Bible says, "It's okay. You're limited." You're powerless and yet you have a God who's created you and made you and wants you to know him in a way that's healthy and right and loving and in deep, not just creation, in separating himself as a creator or creative, but also to engage in relationship with you. See, it's not just that he loves you different than other gods or that he's the creator above all creation but that he does so to show you that you can be loved and in a relationship in a way that you never were before. Uh, my wife sent me a great article recently from um, in Yahoo News, actually. It was talking just about just being honest and saying how difficult things are just piling on life right now. And really trying to make sense of just the current climate that, we just can't seem to get a break. One of the quotes was this, and I thought it was really, really profound. It said, imagine being an antidepressant pill. One tweet said, you were designed to adjust chemical imbalances in the brain, but now you're being asked to face off against a never-ending pandemic, economic recessions, a spiraling political climate, and now World War III. It just keeps coming. This is not a commentary on antidepressants. It's not a commentary that you shouldn't take them. What it is is a commentary to ask, what goes into those spaces that nothing can? Who comes to us in a way that's different than any of the other gods have said they would? See, one of the lines from that article I thought was great that we need to actually lean into. It said, we don't know what to do with our powerlessness. We are faced with every turn with how powerless we are and we have no idea what to do next. And I don't know if that's how you feel, but that's how I feel. I see what's going on in Ukraine and I see people hiding in subway tunnels saw a picture of a man in the middle of one of the public squares hugging a cross, leaning his head just against it. Who knows if he was, I don't know what who he was, couldn't even see his face. We have things going on in our lives right now, breaches of relationship. We have all sorts of difficult things with our children. We're still walking through what seems like an end of pandemic stuff, but we're still in it. What gives us hope, what comes in it, what's different about God than any other gods we can sacrifice to is that he's not there to manipulate our circumstances. He doesn't say, okay, if we can get past these things, you're going to be okay. What are we doing then? Then we're just acquiescing to whatever rearranges the best order for us to make it through. But what he does different than anything else is he says, I'm going to come and be in relationship with you. What diffuses those things more than anything else? What helps you walk through those things more powerfully isn't to know that you'll make it, you got this, but that God himself clothes himself in flesh, comes in the middle, not just in a time period that was easy, but in one of the greatest oppressions that it could have come in. Dies on the cross with complete injustice, and yet what does he do after? He rises, he bursts out of the grave to say, not even the thing that we're all afraid of most is going to change my relationship with you. So that we don't have to use those as leverage. Andy Crouch, who's a great thought leader, thinker, theologian, wrote an article on this book. I think it's kind of a book and article on how we do that, what we use in his quote is, every idol is an attempt to gain an edge over the world, to have some leverage over the chaos. Every idol, every God, everything we look to that cannot hold us in relationship is something we're trying to use to leverage over the chaos. You know who really understands this the most? Are people who probably come out of deep addictions people who've had to sit in a room like AA or others and have complete rigorous honesty about what they've tried to be in relationship with, be it alcohol or something else, that cannot hold them the way the Lord can. That cannot hold them like relationship does. And this is where Christianity is so distinct. God says it's not about a philosophy or an idea. It's not another moral code that you need to keep in order to keep love. It's not something you just try and balance out. I got to have time with my creator over creation. It's not it. It's looking to the one that you're not. You, don't, you can't leverage God. what he does that's incredible, he comes into relationship with you and I to say the good news of a living God. This is why Paul says this in this passage. Listen to what he says. It's really kind of strange and beautiful. When he appeals them, he says, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, good news, that you should turn from these vain things, vain is a Greek word meaning empty, not without without weight, it's kind of like something that blows easily in the wind, but to a living God. Why would he use that language? Turn to a living God. Because this is a God that's not just living. It's not just one of those things who's living and walking. And breathing. He's saying a living God, in, in, in the Greek is saying he's alive. There's not death, not even death itself, not even the thing that you're hoping to persuade whoever comes in and creates these miracles to, to give your circumstances better. He has broken forth death itself. So there is nothing that can change our story there. The deepest part of a relationship with him and with us, is not of leverage. It's of good news that he has done when nothing else can do. That's what this table is. This table is a picture of life. It's a table that shows that the God of heaven and earth is also the God of our redemption. And here's what's incredible about it. You get to taste common elements, things of creation that Jesus himself held in his hands to teach us and to show us that he is not only alive. Look, his body and blood is here for us to take, as it is said. But you know where he sits actively living right now is next to the heavenly father speaking on our behalf that our relationship is eternal. This taste is a reminder to you That Not that he's dead in the ground, but that he burst out. This is his witness to you that he's done these things. This is a taste that he is good. good. And this is not a a place you come to leverage. I want to encourage you that this morning. If you're here and you're kind of wondering about Christianity or maybe you're asking questions about it. Not to come to this table to, to leverage anything about being in a church or, or, or with God or a relationship with him. This is not that leverage. This is a place, because you don't want to do that, that wouldn't be with integrity to do that. I would encourage you to remain or come forward, fold your hands and receive a benediction or, or prayer. But with this, this doesn't say that you have to have it all together. Bring your powerlessness to the one who showed his deeper powerlessness and injustice on a cross so that no matter what we see and experience, that is not the final say. You know why people in war-torn countries believe more in the injustice and wrath of God than we do? More in what we're tasting oftentimes and we push it away is because they know how absolutely powerless they are and that they, like us, would wanna turn to any lower G God to strike up their own justice on this earth? What if God takes up both the injustice on the cross and both vindication for us in the tomb that we can take at this table and celebrate that? Amen? Amen. Let's stand now.